In this special edition of the Saints podcast, we'll be finding out just why the Mobs Memorial match is so special from two people who have found out more about some of the names on the club for War Memorial, with Tim Rodber discussing his affinity with Edgar Mobs and Ben Foden on his experience learning about Blair Swannell. However, we start with Graham McKechnie from BBC Radio Northampton, whose invaluable input has increased our knowledge and understanding about the players and World War I in general, which he says is a pet project of his. For a number of years, really, I've, I've studied I was history, school and university, but uh, just professionally, it, the two worlds collide. My interest in sports, my interest in the First World War has resulted in a, a number of radio documentaries over, over the years, and most recently, since I've been in Northampton, the programme's about mobs, and uh, the one I did with Ben Foden about Blair Swannell and just up the road as well, the great footballer Walter Tull, another legendary Northampton sportsman and uh, first world war figure. Are you ever surprised by the reaction that you get from the sportsmen when you take them to the battlefields? Uh, not anymore. Um, but I, I suppose I, when I first started doing it, I didn't know really what to expect. But I'm not surprised because... I see uh, it repeats itself to a degree now. There's this natural affinity between a sportsman and a soldier. There's obviously different spheres of their life, completely different, and, and the sportsmen are often humbled by uh, trying to understand and, and hear about their stories. But there is, in the nature of sport and in the nature of uh, fighting in a war, the camaraderie, that's the, the one thing that comes through. But also, because you're... What I usually do is match up a sportsman and see somebody from their club like Mobs and Rodbud made sense or Foden and, and Swannell. We're talking about, I know it's a 100 years gap, there's a, an instant connection through the common link of the club and that they're running literally on pretty much the same pitch that they did 100 years ago and, and they're, they're, you know they, they felt the same thing on and off the pitch. They... They, they felt the highs and lows of sports, they socialised and had fun off the pitch. That bit of sports has never, ever changed. The game has changed in many, many ways, but that bit hasn't. And so I think that's why, very quickly, a bond is formed between whichever sportsman I've worked with and the subjects, to the extent that someone like Tim Rodbert won't mind me saying so, I'm sure, one of the hardest people to run on a rugby pitch was very, very moved, visibly moved, when doing the story of Edgar Mobs. As somebody who's come from outside Northampton, uh, how surprised were you by the fact that the Mobs Memorial match was even still being played in this professional era? Well, I knew I knew um, uh, I knew quite a lot about Mobs just because I, you know he is the most famous rugby story probably. Uh, uh, Ronald Polden Palmer's uh, you know similar, but Mobs is the story really for rugby uh, from the First World War. So. I was aware of it, and many people, you know, I suppose the younger rugby fans, I kind of put myself in the middle age, sadly, rugby fans now. But I remember. Right hair does give it away. It does a bit. But, you know, the cusp of amateurism, I can still remember the mobs game being significant and being talked about. Not, I didn't realise until I spoke to people like Lenny and Ian about how important it was and how I've learned since being in Northampton that for many, many people, their first experience of seeing live sports, let alone live rugby, was the Mob Memorial game because so many schools would come and watch it. So that's the bit I've learned about it. But, um, look, I've said this to you before, and I'm not just saying this to you because I now work alongside Northampton Saints, but it's very, very impressive how much this club uh, marks and honours its war dead. To have that memorial so close to the pitch and everything else which is done around it, it's not quite unique, but it's. I think of all the clubs I've worked with, there's a very, very strong appreciation of its history and the importance of that. 
does it also, and this is something else that I, I think that's not necessarily known about the mobs match, and it's something that, you know, that we're definitely trying to push even more this year than in previous years, is the, is the link with local club rugby. Is that something people from outside, especially mm. with it being the army, being the opposition, might think that it's all to do with army charities, but it's not, is it? I mean, does that give, that, give it the extra twist, so to speak? Yeah, I don't think people, that's the, probably the bit that people aren't as aware of these days uh, and you've got the, the British Legion, you've got Health for Heroes and these charities which I think truth be told a lot of people would probably think that's what the Mobs Memorial game is about but of course it's entirely appropriate that it isn't just a military charity uh, they, they, they have their own uh, ways of raising money and they do it extremely effectively but you know, Edgar Mobs was not just a soldier he was first and foremost a rugby player and an England captain and one who someone who clearly took a huge amount of pleasure in developing rugby as a sport and developing the club, and he had such a huge role in developing that club. So that's why I think it's entirely appropriate and important that this match is still used to raise money to help support other, you know, the, the next bunch coming through, the talents which is out there in the, in the East Midlands. Tim Robert, we're here talking about the Mobs Memorial match and your experiences both as a player, which we'll come on to in, in a few minutes' time, uh, but also in terms of your own story in researching the mob story itself. When you got the phone call from Graham McKechnie from BBC Radio Northampton, you know, nearly two years, 18 months, two years ago, to, to really research the story and to go over to Belgium, uh, what was the first thing that came into your mind? Can you remember? I think... Um as, as a former army officer, you, um, I don't know, you, you get into the history of your battalion, you get into the history, of course, what your family did. And I'd always wanted to go to the battlefields of, sort of northern France and Belgium. And um, for whatever reason, I always found a good reason to put it off. But on this occasion, it was sort of a chance I couldn't say no to, not least because it was about a Northampton story. You know, I think that whilst going there as a visitor is important. Having a personal sort of reason to go um, around Edgar Mobbs was the motivation I needed. Is that the kind of thing that always brings these stories to life, are the personal connections? I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, I think as soon as I told my parents that I was, you know, visiting, I got sent reams of information on the family members that you just don't hear about you know obviously they're the ones that died often um, and it really gave me a sort of view into context you know you sort of spend your life don't you running at a thousand miles an hour um, you know you have kids you get older and then you very rarely do you pause and look back on what our relatives and f sort of forefathers did so it was a chance to sort of bring to life really that the history for me as from a family perspective but also connect it with of course this game that happens every year at the Saints. Graham does a lot of research himself you know he, he writes a lot of articles for the Saints program and and you know he did it when he was at Berkshire beforehand with Reading Football Club himself but he gets and he did the same thing with Ben Foden as well you know he, he really got you to engage with it as well now how did he go about that? I think look it's it's you've got a sort of be willing to step back before you immerse yourself. I think that's the first thing. And you've got to lower the barriers, whatever the barriers may be. And for me, it was being busy with work, turn the phone off, you know, sort of lose myself in the moment rather than focusing on what sort of day-to-day -day is happening in my life. I think if you're a rugby player today, similarly, you know, you've got to leave all that behind. Um, 
You've got to be willing to do it. I think Graham, though, is a good storyteller in his own right. He intrigued me by the way he articulated what was happening at the time during World War One, what happened with Edgar in his past in Northampton. He sort of dangled enough carrots, if you like, before we left on our trip to France and Belgium to get me really interested in, in, in Edgar as a person, not just what he'd done in and what he'd achieved in history, but him as an individual and the sorts of things he was going through. Did any of the, the stuff about his life before he went surprise you? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, he was a pretty well-to-do kind of guy. I mean, he was successful, his family was successful in a working-class town, as Northampton was then, you know. Um, so he was a bit of an entrepreneur, and um, that intrigued me. And then, obviously, he was keen to support his country and go to war, as everybody was, but he was too old, which, again, you know, actually, at quite a young age, he was deemed too old. But he had the gumption to sort of, you know, go to the area that knew him, which was the club, and get the support of the supporters and other players, not only at Northampton, but in the area. Um, that was as a person who, you know, could have lived his days perfectly happy with plenty of money doing his thing in Northamptonshire, but he sort of overcame many barriers to get to where he ultimately felt his duty would take him. So you talk about where his duty would take him, takes us nicely onto the battlefields itself. Must have been a very quiet, sombre, reflective place. It's, uh, it's totally surreal. I mean, you know, the kids now in the curriculum at school have to go. And you go to a beautiful part of northern France, all the trees, you know, nothing's more than 100 years old. Um, which is quite interesting when you think about through, you know, the, the oak tree that's 60 feet high isn't actually that old. Um, and you see the pictures of what it was like and where it is now, and you see rolling fields with woods and dotted around, you know, these amazing memorials to the fallen. And um, it's very difficult to imagine what it would have been like. And only through reading and seeing photographs of the time do you understand how desolate the landscape was. You know, we went there on a June day. It's beautiful, the sun was shining, birds were singing, and we were walking along some of the fields, um, particularly around the Somme battlefields, you know, and there's bits of shrapnel dotted around, old casings of shells, and the farmers obviously are playing the fields up, and up comes this stuff. So. You, you have to put it into context. For me, as a sort of someone who was in the army and understanding, as I did, how to manoeuvre troops across ground and stuff, you realise how exposed this area was, how flat it was, and how this was a genuine, um, you know, genuine trench warfare. You know, metres were taken, inches were taken, not, you know, tens and tens of yards and miles. This was a war fought in the trenches inch by inch by inch and only when you get there can you get your head around that. How did it compare with any studies that you might have done while you were in the army, you know, to, to be there as a civilian uh, to, to look at that in comparison to, as I say, you know, when you had been looking at it in terms of maybe from a tactical or a historical or, the, you know, the industrial mechanisation of war and, you know, it was a real change of paradigm between what had gone before and what came after. Yeah, there's no doubt what you get taught at Sandhurst and when you then go and you put it into practice occasionally in a modern sense, whether that's, you know, in Northern Ireland or elsewhere.
the battlefield of today is very different to the battlefield of then and you know World War One was really the big beginning of mechanization and but it still required men to take ground still required a very simple sort of I'm here you're there I'm gonna take that trench today of course you know that is a much more complex morely more sophisticated from an ordnance perspective so w battles have changed beyond belief so going there and seeing kind of the rawness of it all and, and I say seeing it I, I only mean from the sense of reading and seeing pictures and then standing on the ground do you get a full appreciation of the scale and how many people died and the horrific sort of nature of that Talking of scale, I don't think anything quite takes away seeing the Ypres uh, monument in person, does it? Yeah, I mean, there all of them are horrific. I mean, you know, the Menin Gate is um, a memorial that was built to put the names of people whose bodies weren't found. You know, and they got to 65,000, ran out of space and had to build another one. Um, you know, it's a sort of 80 foot, 100 foot tall building. A, uh, arch across a, st a street um, you know and I, I had to present a layer wreath and read out the citation and you know there was a thousand people watching it happened to be the first day of the Tour de France coming through Ypres so it's a very moving moment you know some of my fam former family members names are on that memorial so it, you can't really get the scale of it but for me I'd, I'd been there for, th for two days up to that point I've been going around all the battlefields, looking at all the memorials and getting to the Menin Gate, you know, and realising that every night since, I think it was 1917, the fire brigade of Ypres um, play the last post and carry out this performance every night, eight o'clock, no matter, come rain or shine, or shine, you know, and I think that's a, you know, fair play to the Belgian authorities, you know, they, they live with that. Anyone living in that area grows up surrounded by this. We're here in in the UK on the land, the mainland, without really any physical evidence, really. These people grew up in Belgium surrounded by memorials. Did having members of your own family, I mean, you've mentioned it a couple of times, having members of your own family on the Menin Gate make it all the more poignant for you as well? Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, and you don't... It's interesting, until you do the research and then you, you put your name or your mother's maiden name in... in, in the um, some of the websites and you get your the names come out and you know you've you're instantly interested and it then makes things come to life for you doesn't it and you're not a third party bystander you your sort of forefathers were part of it and I think you know whether you're British or Australian or a Kiwi or you know everybody's there there's a link and you'll find a name on, on those memorials do you think that because mobs didn't come back you know whether not even his body didn't come back you know as you say is never found do you think that added to the to the legacy to the to the legend of the man i think look i i think his legacy began when he walked into that saints stadium and said i'm going to war i'm going as a private soldier who's with me you know and uh you kind of think through you know, I was in the army, I was captain of the Saints. You think about, you know, would I have had the backbone to do that, you know? I mean, and so whether he was to come back or not, his sort of legend 
began when he was able to take a group of people, motivate them to leave their families behind and fight for for their king. And I think that, um, you know, that's that in itself is a hell of an achievement. What he then went on to do as an individual, rise through the ranks, command the regiment, you know, get injured a few times, save lives, um, that, that is no surprise really as somebody who you know, had the, the, the spine and the fortitude to do what he did in the very beginning. As a player, how aware of the legend were you, especially when it came to playing in the mobs match, which you did? Uh, you know what, not really. It's ironic. I mean, I think that, you know, I think Dylan these days is very interested and follows the history of the club and some of the players and people who went before him and the rest of the team. And I think, you know, when I look back, that's probably the one thing we didn't do enough of. You know, we were, we were, you know, we were playing during a ma amazing period of fluctuation in the game from amateur to professional. We were very concerned about ourselves and the results and the club. Um, I think the one regret I have, or not maybe not regret, but certainly what we should have done was spent more time understanding the past. And I know the players do that today. I think you know Graham is very keen as I would be, that the players understand that legacy even more. Um, the sacrifice people make, you know, is something that, you know, we're here because of that. So um, I knew a bit about it, but not, not as, certainly not as much as I do now. Do you think that's though one of those inevitabilities about sport though? I mean, for me, I remember the last meeting of the old committee before it was wound up and you've got a room full of, of gentlemen who must have seen thousands of games between them. And yet, they were all talk They weren't talking about things that happened twenty or thirty years ago. They were talking about what happened last Saturday and what's coming up next Saturday. That sport is always looking forward. As I say, do you think it's one of those inevitabilities? Um, yeah, I suppose so. But you've got to put you've got to put things into context. I think that um, you know too often, um, you know, we're in it for the here and now. And I think that whilst that's very important. When, you, when you're a sports person and you look for motivation and you look for millimetres, not inches, you know, or yards, you're looking for those, that tiny bit of something that's going to give you an edge on somebody. Um, clearly, you do all your work, you do all of your preparation, understanding the history, what you represent. You know, there's a reason why the All Blacks are so good. Um, it's, not a, it's not about the team today. You know, the All Blacks don't, this is because of teams and players before them that have created a brand and a culture of winning um, and representing their country that is now reflected in the team today. And because the team is successful today, they'll maintain that momentum and maintain, you know, the, the next generation of All Blacks that will play. Um, you don't build a, team, a winning team and a winning culture overnight. It takes years and years and years, and in in many cases, generations for it to come through. You know, when when you think about Leicester and what Leicester have done in the leagues over the last 25, 30 years, that didn't happen overnight. You know, um, the good teams are the ones that can maintain the momentum and recognise the past and how that's contributing to the future. They're the ones that you know really are successful, and you can name the teams that have been successful over. 10 years, 20 years, can you name the teams that are successful over 30, 40 years? And that's the real challenge. And I think it's a challenge for the Saints. You know, the Saints have been 
reasonably successful since it went professional in 95 so you know um, 20 years ago or so um, but can they maintain their top four status for the next 20 30 years what can they look back on and what can they look forward to and how do they build that over a successful period and how do they define themselves if I asked an all black that question they'll be able to give me the answer if I asked someone in the Saints today or in any English club or in the England team can you define what success is going to be and how you can connect the past with the future and how you ensure that is a legacy you, you continue, they wouldn't be able to answer it. I would all Blackwood. So bearing that in mind, how happy are you then that the mobs match continues with Saints being one of the teams that plays and you know, and it's used as an opportunity to give young players the, the chance to shine and, and to engage with the past in that way? Look, every time anybody pulls on a Saints shirt, it's a chance, isn't it? And whether it's in the mobs game or any game, professionalism has taken away a bit of the shine on the quality of that game, perhaps. But then again, you know, if you have a culture where as Saints players, you are being pushed to live up to the past and the expectation of the future, then that game is as important as any game. And so for me, not only is it important for those players playing to do their best and to play the highest of their ability, it's also important for the army because they're in the process to the build-up of their tri-services um, tri tournament. But it's also an important moment for everybody in the area of Northamptonshire and Bedfordshire to reflect on the past and bring the past into the present and for a moment say, OK, this is what this individual did for the area and for the regiment. This is what happened in the, in the First World War and we'll reflect on that and we'll we'll say thank you and enjoy it and now we'll push this forward into the current day and let's see you know that young Saints team playing well against the British Army team that will be good and win you know and if they don't win then they will let themselves down they'll let the club down they'll let the history of the club down and they won't get picked for the next team if they want to play for the Wanderers or the first team. And finally your own reflections on playing in the mobs match you know you were part of um, I, unfortunately I didn't make the game myself but there was one where you were a part of a, basically an All Saints East Midlands 15 you know any particular highlights either from that day or from other mobs matches that you were a part of I think I played on both teams actually I think I played for the East Mids and the Barbarians I think it was am I right I think I'm right yeah. saying that. and uh, yeah I mean it, back then it was it was a big moment in the calendar I mean you know, it wasn't professional and there were games like that, you know, it's like going down to South Wales, you know, we go to the, on the Welsh tour. You know, these were the moments of the season that defined your ability to play, you know, outside of the normal clubs you played. So always good fun, always loved playing in the gardens. You know, rugby for me was, you know, a physical sport that I loved, the physicality of it. And so, you know, when you play either for the East Mids team or for the Barbarians in those games, you're you know, challenged in different ways and I, I loved it, enjoyed every minute of it. Ben Foden, we're coming up to the Mobs Memorial match. Now, not that long ago, maybe a year ago, uh, you took a little trip uh, <laughs> to, to to Turkey to, to research Blair Swanell. And I wouldn't want to go again, not at the moment anyway. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> about that, the better. How much of an eye-opener was it, uh, taking that trip over? It, yeah, it makes you, I think it makes you look at life and, and the opportunity that we have and, and uh, you know what was going on back then was was so influential in, 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 in terms of everyone was involved in it 
and someone like Blair Swannell, the guy I was over there learning about and, and his trip and, and where you know the war took him but rugby took him as well because obviously he started off here in Northampton, uh, played for the British Lions, travelled to Australia, stayed in Australia, joined their infantry and, and then from then joined the British infantry that and then and sadly ended up over in Gallipoli where he sadly lost his life and it just shows you the where sport can take you first and foremost and he was very influential you know all the memoirs written about him were saying that he was a leader and a leader of men and and and, and that probably comes from being a rugby player and being a good rugby player is that you're a leader on the field and he took that and put it into into the into the you know war and and, and what he did over in Gallipoli and um, it, it's you know, I'd like to hope that I'd be, you know, as brave as him in that in face in the face of that. But obviously, um, with today, his warfare is very different. But um, when you when he was asked upon, he, he delivered to the delivered to the to the highest level. In the radio documentary you did with BBC Radio Northampton, you know, you were given the the account to read out. Had you seen that in advance of that? Because your reaction was very surprising. No, no. Um, so Graham was very. Um, you know, forward with me and said, "Don't, don't go and research it. Let me talk you through it." And so he gave me the uh, film Gallipoli to watch, so I sort of like knew what to expect when I got there. And um, yeah, and obviously um, the way Graham painted it as well, it was going to be like it's sort of like this war hero story. And so in my head, it was all going to have a happy ending because that's how the movies end and, and the stories end. But in, in real life, it doesn't happen that way. And obviously, you know, the more you learn about Blair Swannell, the more you like the guy, the more I could sort of relate to him as well because of obviously the rugby background. And he seemed a bit of a, a, guy, a lad on the field and, and, and sort of a guy that I could relate to. Uh, and then when it just comes to the end with, with you know, a single headshot, you know, 20 minutes from storming the beach is a bit of a shock, and a, um, you know, and you realise that sometimes the fairy tale endings don't always happen, and, and and some great people, you know, lost their lives in 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 the world in World War Two, one, two, one, both, <laughs> both. <laughs> both, yeah. Um, it's a very human story, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and. Uh, I think that we're very sheltered from that sort of thing as well and it's you know when you follow a story like Blair's it becomes very real and, and when you walk the path and you can see your bullets lying on the floor and 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 holes where shell fires you know made a mark in, in the landscape and and they were very good explaining to me as well we were walking through um, I can't remember what the path was called, but basically it took a lot of shell fire. So you always, they were always jumping into bushes, and, and if you were unlucky, then one came near you that you probably lost your life. And and that's how brutal warfare is, I think, as well. You know, you could be the best soldier in the world, but if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, then then that's it. The terrain at Gallipoli. Were you surprised by that? Yes, I was surprised how rough it was, and that you, you know it would be a big ask of anyone to sort of. You know, climb mountains and, and and still have the energy to to storm barracks and troops and and put yourselves in in danger. But uh, it is a very tricky terrain. You've got to climb up mountains. You've got to get down the other side of them as well. It, it wouldn't have been the easiest. And obviously, that's why it was very difficult for for the for the troops to storm it. The Mobs Memorial match ha obviously has Edgar Mobs' name to it, but how important is it that the likes of, of Blair and the other 10 players whose names are on the War Memorial here get remembered as part of that? Yeah, I think it's, it's good to remember everyone that was involved. In the, obviously, there's that connection with them being Northampton Saints players and, and obviously going off to the war, but it, it's just good to remember everyone. And, and, and obviously having the Mobs Memorial... 
it lets the players know that there's that tradition that runs through the club that it's been here that long that it's, it's survived world wars um, you know a lot of great guys were lost at the, in the war and a lot of rugby players as well and a lot of leaders from from a great sport you know took what they knew and took it and hopefully put it to good use in in, in a world war and um, it's sad I think it's sad in the in the fact that so many young men lost their lives tragically but um you know, hopefully it inspires us as players, as, as people as well, to, to go on and do good things. Is it sad as well that this is the only kind of only match of its kind that's still played? Yeah, I think so. I think well, certainly that, at this level. Yeah, it? I think the tradition, it, any tradition, you know, you, you, when you go to school uh, and, you, and you play school schoolboy fixtures, I, was, I went to Bromsgrove and, and our big game was against RGS High Wycombe um, and that fixture had been running for 100 years or something. And so it, I think it's important for all traditions to stay in rugby. I think that's what makes it special, what makes it great. I think the big games um, bring, out, bring out big things in big players and, um, yeah, the, the mobs game is always uh, a big one and, and easy to get up for because you know you're remembering something and I think that you know when we lead into the game we will talk about that and, and say we always talk about Edgar Mobs and what he did and obviously if I can say something about Blair and what he did it, it, it you know shakes the guys up gives them a bit more passion and a bit more you know determination to get out there and play well.